Have you ever had a crisis of faith? And I don't mean just a bad hair day or, you know, something that, uh, you know, disrupted your schedule. I'm talking about something that could potentially change your life, that you've come to the place where you just don't see any way forward spiritually. I suppose if we're honest with ourselves, we've all had something like that at one or more times in our life. Uh, some have them more dramatically than others. I, I knew a young man, in fact, he and I kind of grew up together in the same town, same schools. When we were in our early 20s, he suddenly, without any external cues that I could see, had a serious crisis of faith. And he and I took a long walk together. And he told me, he said, I can't do it anymore. He said, I, I can't. He said, I have done everything that you're supposed to do. I've confessed my sins. I've repented. I've turned away from them. I have, I have studied. I have prayed. I have asked for forgiveness for my sins. I have received that by faith. But he said, it doesn't work. He said, I think God must be this, this kind of this kind of person who puts a carrot on, on a string out in front of you, that, that carrot being salvation, and says, here, it's simple, you can have it, but you can never quite get it. And he said, I have come to the place where I can, I can no longer believe in God. It's, it's better not to believe in a God at all than to believe that God would do something like that to you. And, and I was a little confused at first because I had always known my friend as a very devout young man. Um, by all outward appearances, most of us who knew him uh, thought he's probably a better Christian than the rest of us. He certainly tried hard. He tried to live up to everything. You know, he, he believed you had to live up to all the light you had, and you, you, you had to overcome every, you know, tendency that you had to, to sin. And then when he would make a mistake, it was devastating for him. He thought, how can I continue to be a sinner when I have accepted salvation by faith? I don't know that I gave him very much in the way of spiritual comfort that day. 
Um, he actually remembers a few things that I don't. Um, but uh, he eventually uh, came out of that crisis and, and was stronger for it, actually. Um, but it has caused me to think about what we, what we think of when we think of faith and what we think God expects. How can salvation be a free gift and then be nearly impossible to obtain? That kind of thing in, in my friend and many of the rest of us has, has set up a, such a cognitive dissonance that eventually we have to either give up on our faith and give up on God entirely or live in this constant tension of feeling saved and condemned at the same time. Today, I really want us to take a dive, a deep dive into Scripture, into Paul's letter to the, Corinth, uh, to the Philippians. Salvation seems simple enough, and Paul reminds us of things that we should already know. I think that's one reason why Philippians 3 is, is kind of cryptic. The first, uh, the first six verses or so of uh, Philippians 3, uh, Paul is kind of reciting his resume. You know, he's, he's a good guy. You know, he did try to live up to the law. And he was successful at it. But I think we need, and I, I believe Paul realized this too, that uh, we need to renew our faith constantly. If we don't, we run the risk of despair. This is, this is not just a... The gospel is not just a pleasant add-on to, you know, a list of things that we're supposed to do. The gospel is not just a, a way to make a bitter pill go down. The gospel is not just some sugar coating that we can add to, you know, a list of obligations to be a good person the gospel, according to Paul, is everything. And he was willing and even anxious to give up everything, his entire resume, in order to have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pick up the thread of Paul's thinking in Philippians 3, starting with verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Don't get much more zealous than that. As for righteousness based on the law, Paul says, I was faultless. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. I want to pause right there. Paul is not saying I need the gospel because I couldn't keep the law. He's saying, no, I kept the law. I kept it. In fact, I was so zealous for the law. That's, that's the, uh, sometimes, this is such cryptic writing, sometimes you have to kind of read between the lines of what, what Paul is talking about here. Uh, people who were zealous were zealous for the law. And uh, later in Jewish history, there were even a, a, a group of people called the Zealots who were so zealous for the law that they would commit violence in the name of God. Paul was so zealous that he committed violence in the name of God and the law as he persecuted the church. So Paul does not need Christ in order to help him obey the law. At least that's how he viewed it at one time. His reasons for coming to Christ are not because he's unsuccessful. He was the rising star. He was the leader. He was the, the Pharisee, the guy that everybody looked to to say, yeah, there's our future. That guy can do it. We'll follow him and we'll, you know, we'll go eradicate this Christian sect that has started up. But notice what he says next. I considered them garbage that I may gain Christ and, verse 9, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul did not need 
Christ in order to be successful in his obedience to the law, in being zealous for the law, and in having a very impressive resume as a spiritual and political leader of the time. But he gave up his entire resume in order to have Christ. He gave up the righteousness that he had that came from the law in order to have Christ. This ends up being a more important point than we often give it credit for. As a matter of fact, Paul spends a lot more time in this chapter talking about giving up his resume than he does in explaining righteousness by faith. Uh, but that's at least partly due to the fact that Paul does explain himself elsewhere. And much of what he writes here in Philippians 3 uh, is, is based on things that he has already written down, especially to the church in Galatia. We are often tempted to think and act by the philosophy that I am saved when I'm good enough to save. And Christ is valuable to me because I can add him to my resume and he'll make up the difference in my shortcomings. Paul is making a frontal assault on that idea. Paul says it's not works of the law and Christ. It's all Christ. It's Christ or nothing. And he came to realize that all of his righteousness according to the law was worth nothing. Now, before we go on, um, let's remind ourselves of some of the very common terms that we throw around all the time. Uh, specifically, grace, faith, and righteousness. What do those terms mean? Now, there are many ways to define each of these, and I'm not going to tell you that I have the be-all and end-all of, you know, the end of all uh, definitions here, but this is what works for me. So, what is grace? Specifically, what is the grace of God? Simply put, grace is the expression, or you could even say the opera, opera <laughs> I can't even say that. <laughs> when something is operationalized, it's put into action. And grace is God's love operationalized. 
It is the expression of God's unconditional love for his children. Jesus' death on the cross is the expression of God's love. It is grace. What is faith? Now, this is a really important one, and it can be kind of tricky because there's a, there's a very simple definition of faith, and the Greek word is pistis, and, you know, you can, you can say, well, pistis means trust, and then you can just say, well, every occurrence of this word for grace, I mean for faith, uh, it means trust. But in the Christian life, faith takes on a much more rich and profound meaning than just trust. Uh, trust is a good start, but faith also encompasses things like loyalty and love. Specifically, faith is love for the kind of person God is. It's not enough to simply love the fact that God exists. I mean, so what? So, so God exists. And I love that fact that, that God exists. But that's not enough to be called faith. Faith is a loyalty to a very specific and certain kind of God. A God who blesses the losers who gives mercy and forgiveness to everyone. This is a God who asks us to love our enemies, not to judge people and give forgiveness to everyone, not to worry and to do to others what we would have them do for us. Now, if you love that kind of God, you know, a merciful, all-loving, forgiving God, then you aspire to love like he does. Even though you keep failing. And you do to others what you would want them to do to you not because that's what you have to do to go to heaven, but because you want to do, because that's the kind of God you love. And when you love that kind of God, guess what? That's faith. Faith is about how good God is. It's not about how good we are. To have faith in your own goodness is to have a faith based on the law, which is what Paul rejected. Okay, now what is righteousness? Now, all of these terms, grace, faith, and righteousness, are really relationship terms. They really cannot be understood outside of a relationship, and that's why 
a righteousness according to the law is so bad because it, it's almost like a, a push-button kind of uh, faith. It's, you know, if I, if I do this, you know, if I put the quarter in the slot, then, you know, God is this vending machine that will give me a reward. Now, sometimes God has to take us where we are, and that's where we start out. But that is not the mature faith that Paul is talking about here. Righteousness is, if you want to put a simple but all-encompassing term on it, is a covenant relationship. Now, we have to unpack that a lot. So let's start by saying that righteousness is being claimed by Jesus as his own. He's the one that does the covenant here. When Jesus began the tradition known as the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the covenant in my blood. It wasn't a covenant that, you know, was made by anyone else. It was a covenant made by Jesus in my blood, he said. He is the righteous one. That's the basis of this covenant. Our righteousness is a derivative of his. His righteousness inspires and creates our faith. Thus, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by grace and we experience that grace by faith in Christ a righteous relationship with God. I want to call our attention to a couple of expressions having to do with faith. In verse 9 of Philippians. In the NIV, it says, through faith in Christ, and then there's this dash, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, if you understand righteousness and faith in the way that we just defined them, there shouldn't be any confusion. But the problem is in many of our discussions of, quote, righteousness by faith, I sometimes get the impression that faith has now become a work. That faith is, is now something that I have to generate in order to please God. Because, you know, after all, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, you know, I've got to generate all, all this faith and, and somehow be, be, you know, full of enough faith that... Uh, you know, God will like me again. That's not what Paul is saying, but a, a literal reading of this text out of context could allow for that kind of interpretation, that through faith in Christ, okay, so I've got to generate this faith in Christ, uh, then I get this righteousness that comes from God 
which comes on the basis of my faith. <clears throat> I'm going to need a bottle of water pretty soon. <laughs> um, but let's look at these. Let's look at these expressions. Faith in Christ. In the Greek, oh bless you, thank you so much. <laughs> In the, in the original language, this word or this expression, faith in Christ, pistis Jesu is the literal Greek uh, phrase there, literally means faith of Christ. In most every Bible and commentary that you will consult, it's always translated faith in Christ. And that's a good translation. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's a shade of meaning here that I think we need to, to find and to expose uh, that will help us not to make this mistake, this mistake that I have to generate this faith in order to please God. I think that's what my boyhood friend uh, was, was doing. And, and, you know, it was expressed in, you know, oh, I keep, I keep sinning, but, you know, that made him think that there was something wrong with his faith. And, and he thought it was his responsibility to generate a pure faith so that he would please God. So, there is another way of translating this expression, pistis Jesu, faith of Jesus. It can legitimately be translated the faithfulness of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ. So, how would that change the text? Well, our scripture reading this morning had that translation in it. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but it's from the NET, the New English Translation, also called the Net Bible. The Net Bible renders verse 9 this way. I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. Did that change the whole text for you? It doesn't need to change it entirely because the original translation or the NIV translation is, is, is not wrong. It's right. But this, this translation of the NET manages to capture or reveal the fact that our faith is not based on our efforts to have faith. Our faith is based on the faithfulness of Christ. It is Christ's faithfulness that changes everything 
like the yeasty beasties. <laughs> in the Reformation, in the Reformation, led in part by Martin Luther and, and many others, they published what are called the five sola or alone statements. Here they are. Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed by scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. Those are the five sola statements because the Latin word for alone is sola. Contrast that with the church that was in power at the time. To grace, they added church authority. To faith, they added works. To Christ, they added priestly absolution and intercession and relics and indulgences. To scripture, they added tradition. And to the glory of God, they added the glory of the head of the church. That was the contrast between the church of the 16th and 17th century and the church of the Reformation. The, the church at the time then went through what was called a counter-reformation. And in one statement of their council, it was called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent took place in many different locations over many, a long period of years, and they produced many documents that kind of defined how the church was going to reform itself and how it was going to counter the Protestant Reformation. In one article, the church took direct aim at Luther and the other reformers, specifically the idea of faith alone. And so they published this document that basically said that it takes more than faith. It takes faith plus works of penance. And kind of to summarize it, they basically said, do the best you can and God will make up the difference. Have you ever heard that before? Well, now you know where it comes from. It comes from the Council of Trent. Do the best you can and God will make up the difference. Remember, Paul did not forsake his resume because he couldn't keep the law. He didn't need Christ for an add-on. He didn't need Christ as a helper to produce the righteousness that was needed to be saved. By the way, I call that assisted living. I'll be ready for that soon. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the faithfulness of Christ inspires and creates our faith. God takes responsibility for our faith. It's not that he comes and helps us fill in the gaps of our law-keeping. It's that he replaces our resume of law-keeping and says, follow me, and while you're following, I count you righteous. I remember as a young adolescent, sitting in the back seat of the family car, we had a 1960 Rambler station wagon. What a car. My dad put a tape on. Do you remember, anybody old enough to remember cassette tapes? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I, know, I know that that car did not even have a cassette player. They certainly didn't make them with cassette players uh, in 1960. But uh, he had a little portable one that we drove around in the car, and it was quite a few years later. Anyway, so he put a tape on of a young preacher by the name of Morris Venden. I can still remember hearing Maury Venden tell about another preacher at the time who asked his congregation once how many of you believe that we are righteous by what we do? That is, by works. And amazingly enough, a few hands went up. And, as Venden related, the preacher went on and asked, How many of you believe that we are righteous by faith? And again, a few hands went up, about the same number as those who had voted for righteousness by works. And then the preacher said, who believes that we are righteous by faith only? I'm sorry, I blew that. <laughs> he said, after asking for how many voted for righteousness by works, how many votes for righteousness by faith, then he said, how many of you believe that we are righteous by faith plus works? And almost everybody's hand went up. He then proceeded, said Venden, to proclaim the truth of the gospel that righteousness comes through faith alone. And then Venden himself went on in his characteristic way of explaining righteousness by faith alone. I mention Pastor Venden partly because he was the pastor of this church for a while. Um, but I, I mention him mostly because of something that should be painfully obvious by now. We know this stuff. This is not new. We need to be reminded, but this is not an innovation. Maybe, maybe we're attracted to this whole faith plus works thing because 
it sounds like the safe way to go. Um, it's, it's, it's a way to hedge our bets. Righteousness may come by faith in Jesus, but maybe he'll be even more impressed if we work on our resume a little bit. A little legalism never hurt anyone after all, right? Well, actually, it does hurt everyone. If you're trying to impress God, you are using righteousness by works. But what would it be like if we did things out of love and faith instead of fear and worry? What would our church be like if we promoted Jesus all the time and then loved each other like he loves us? What would happen if we really believed that it's not our faith that saves us, it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? It's the faithfulness of Christ that changes everything.